Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward together in the book of Acts, still in chapter 10, the last bit of chapter 10, the final of five sermons, chapter 10, this beautiful interaction between Peter and other Jews and Cornelius and other Gentiles in his household, perfectly orchestrated by God. I'll read from verse 34 of chapter 10 through until verse 18 of chapter 11. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven, 
At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. This is our final sermon, as I've said here in Acts chapter 10. This whole chapter, rightly understood as Pentecost for the Gentiles, even Peter directly referencing Pentecost in today's text. We've looked at Cornelius' vision, we've looked at Peter's vision, we've looked at their meeting when they first came together. We've looked at Peter's sermon and now we'll look and see what God does to bring this glorious event to a monergistic conclusion. The commentaries I've read before and I'll remind us again in a sense this scene is the book's turning point. As from here the gospel will fan out in all directions to people across a vast array of geographical regions something Paul's three missionary journeys will underscore. God is at work. Salvation is of the Lord. By His power and by His grace, the faith that we have is a gift from God brought to us by the baptism of His Holy Spirit when we first come into His kingdom and by the continual indwelling the continual filling of His Spirit unto sanctification. Salvation is of the Lord. Our faith is of the Lord. And our faith does not come to us as some dry academic belief. It comes to us by the presence of God's Spirit poured out upon us from heaven. Along with the gifts that He sovereignly bestows Not only does He sovereignly bestow salvation upon His elect according to His gracious choice, but within His kingdom to His people, He sovereignly bestows the gifts that He gives to each one of us. And every one of us in His kingdom will rise up and magnify His name with the gifts that He gives to each one of us. We will not all speak in tongues miraculously as they did, but we will all magnify God like they did. And then, whenever revival has its fruit, there will always be the question they asked John the Baptist, what must we do? 
It's not just with hands raised and singing songs for hundreds of hours in a row. It is unto repentance and a life of love and service unto God and unto our neighbors. And we see this displayed here in this simple way that they asked Peter to stay for a few days. And he did. Revival always has fruit, brothers and sisters. And that fruit is always going to include repentance and sanctification until you die. That's what real revival looks like. It's not emotions. and It's worth emphasizing given the world that we live in. So we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit fell upon them in verse 44 and discuss that. We're going to see that the Jews were astonished and talk about why. We'll see what the evidence was of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There will be demonstrable evidence in the life of believers when God sovereignly pours out His Spirit upon them in baptism and in the ongoing indwelling, the ongoing filling of the Spirit. And then Peter's response is to call for water baptism. We'll discuss water baptism a bit, particularly mode of baptism. And then they ask Peter to stay a few days, and we see that's the beautiful initial fruit of salvation. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. So first, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, is what we're told in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So first I want us to note the movement of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the preached word. Please see this. God poured out His Holy Spirit while Peter was still preaching the gospel. Before Peter finished his message, the great desire of every earnest preacher commentary says this visible sign representeth, this is Calvin, representeth unto us as it were in a table what an effectual instrument of God's power the preaching of the gospel is. For he, that is God, poured out his spirit as Peter spake to the end that God might show that he sendeth not teachers to that end that they may beat the air with the vain sound of their voice, but that God may work mightily by their voice and may quicken the same by the power of His Spirit to the salvation of the godly. Thus doth Paul put the Galatians in mind, that they received the Holy Ghost by the hearing of faith. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? There's the preached word that the Galatians received. And what happened? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now this should be a great encouragement to all preachers of the Gospel, whether ordained or not, to anyone speaking the truth or hearing the truth. Brothers and sisters, the power is of God, not of men. Let us all be content to preach His Word and to leave the results with Him. Praying and hoping for His Spirit to fall upon, you see the text, all those 
who hear his word. Certainly my prayer before I come to this place should always include such a prayer as this. Oh God, would I preach your truth and would you, oh God, pour out your spirit upon all those who hear your word unto faith, unto greater faith, unto greater filling with your spirit, unto greater experience of your gifts bestowed unto greater magnification of God in their lives. Hopefully this is what you desire as a Christian. Next, note these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit baptism before they received water baptism. What do we learn from this? God is not bound by forms or rites as to how and when He pours out His Holy Spirit. There are other examples in the book of Acts where water baptism precedes Holy Spirit baptism. In this example, God pours out His Holy Spirit before water baptism. And in fact, we see it was part of what God used to help open Peter's eyes that they should be brought for water baptism. Matthew Henry tells us the Holy Ghost fell upon others after they were baptized for their confirmation, but upon these Gentiles before they were baptized, as Abraham was justified by faith, being yet in uncircumcision, to show that God is not tied to a method nor confines himself to external signs. The Holy Ghost fell upon those that were neither circumcised nor baptized. For it is the Spirit that quickeneth, <coughs> the flesh profiteth nothing. <coughs> Next. I hope we will note that this work of God occurs within a Gentile home. <coughs> not in the synagogue. Not in a public place. In a Gentile home. A hospitable, respectable, God-fearing Gentile, but it is still <coughs> a home outside the covenant. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit cannot be kept out of any place where He is poured out by God. He will gather in His elect. There's no place anyone can hide from Him. Where can I go from your spirit, the psalmist says? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. As we will see, there's no more shocking place where a Jew could go than into the home, into the home, to experience hospitality, table fellowship with a Gentile. And we've talked about this before. What kinds of places do you think that the Holy Spirit can't get into? Well, the night shines as the day before God. None can hide from Him. His Word is powerful. His Spirit is almighty. Walk in the boldness of God. Next. <clears throat> I want us to note here the action. The action is by the Spirit. 
the action comes from God. God does the action in this Holy Spirit baptism. The hearers are passive recipient recipients of the work of the Spirit. It is not true that the hearers immerse themselves in the Spirit. The Spirit falls upon them from above. And this language is meaningful to emphasize the sovereign, monergistic nature of salvation, which is essential to a healthy life of sanctification. If you do not understand how your salvation began, you will be frustrated and confused in your process of sanctification as well. Note the actions of those who are receiving the Spirit. What are they doing? They are hearing the Word. That's what they're doing. Their part in this particular event is to hear the Word. They didn't earn the Spirit. They received the Spirit, commentary says. This is actually from Pastor Kaiser's sermon on this text. They didn't take the Spirit. They received the Spirit. It was monergistic grace. Monergistic means that the action is with God alone. You'll notice I'm not defining the term. I want you to be curious about it. I want you to think about it if you haven't heard it before and wonder what it means. Next, note the connection between the baptism of the Spirit and faith in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is really important. As they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. They they had saving faith granted to them by the working of God's Holy Spirit within them. The faith and the presence of the Holy Spirit cannot be separated from one another. Do you desire to grow in faith? You must be more filled with the Spirit. Do you desire to be more filled with the Spirit? You will increase in faith towards Christ as this occurs. Faith came to them initially through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the key idea when you read about the baptism of, whether it's water baptism or Holy Spirit baptism, is it's the initiatory movement of God to bring someone into his kingdom. When you hear baptism, you think initial. And then what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that God calls us, and also the writings uh, in the epistles, God calls us to go on being filled with the Spirit. So there's the baptism that starts it all, and then there's the ongoing filling of the Spirit that continues the life of faith. Now, notice what words they're hearing. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So faith... In Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Recall, I didn't put it in here, the verse right before brings up judgment. So the whole story of our sin and the judgment we deserve and the only hope being in Christ, faith in Him for the remission of sins is set before their eyes. And at that moment, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Not to say that the Holy Spirit only inhabits this specific doctrinal point, but the justification by faith that is ours only through Christ and only by faith is a very 
special moment of Holy Spirit work in every person's life. When they first come to faith, being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And later, later in Acts 15, Peter describes this. Note how he connects the Holy Spirit with faith and with remission of sins. We're going to get to the phrase that he uses, purifying their hearts by faith. Purifying their hearts by faith. Acts 15, this is the Jerusalem Council. They're debating how to deal with the Gentiles. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter here shows us the connection between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and saving faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and initial saving faith go together. Paul describes this reality to the Ephesians, that this faith comes to us in the same way that the Spirit came as a gift. Our faith, our saving faith, comes to us as a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast the enemies of God receiving the grace of God the very hands your hands your will that would have plunged the spear into Christ's side you would have done it that would have screamed crucify him that would have mocked him there next to the cross as his Enemies, that very wickedness accomplishes by God's grace your salvation. So not only is it God's grace upon undeserving sinners, it's God's grace upon his sworn enemies. Next, note the distinction between Holy Spirit baptism at justification and the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit unto sanctification. So the event in today's text, is an initial Holy Spirit outpouring upon these Gentiles. It is their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again from above, brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? For the remission of sins, rejoicing that God has freed you from His judgment and His wrath. But also bear in mind, ongoing outpourings of the Holy Spirit are not equated with baptism in the Holy Spirit. We'll see this difference throughout the book of Acts. Baptism initial, ongoing filling, more and more and more filled with God's Spirit throughout the course of our eternal existence. <clears throat> Pastor Kaiser says, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, both baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2. But they are never again said to be baptized by the Spirit. Every time the Holy Spirit falls upon them for empowering, 
After that, it is said to be a filling. And so in Acts 4.31, the apostles are gathered for another prayer meeting, and it says when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This was not a second baptism, but it was a second filling. And we need to have second, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and on and on fillings. And Ephesians 5.18 uses the Greek present tense to indicate that we need to keep on getting filled with the Holy Spirit. So while theologians argue about when baptism takes place, everyone has agreed that we need to continually be seeking the Holy Spirit for His filling. We need Him for our empowering. Isn't it beautiful that if we're commanded something by God, that we can expect that as we seek Him, He will respond. He says for us to be filled with the Spirit, will He deny that filling to us as we seek Him? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You fall down on the ground and laugh a lot? You speak gibberish aloud all over the place? Stand around and sing for hundreds of hours. I think it's a lot simpler than that. It's just more of what happens when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this in Ephesians 5. As I read this text from Ephesians 5, note how similar his description is to what happens with the Gentiles in today's text. So we've seen what happened to the Gentiles. We've read it, and we're going to get to it more detailed. They magnify God in their speech as a result of being filled with the Spirit. Look what Paul commands by the Spirit's inspiration in Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what's the fruit of this? What does this look like? Well, here Paul describes it speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. They magnified God in Cornelius' house. We magnify God together today as we're filled with the Spirit. In these simple ways, through singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is what it looks like. This is the will of God for you. This is revival. Being filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. This is revival. The people of God Rise up in love towards him and towards one another and do his will. This is revival. What happens? The Jews are astonished. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So the Jews are astonished because they see the gift of the Holy Spirit has also been poured out on the Gentiles just like it was on them. And why are they astonished? 
because they are still not freed from this lingering false belief that a Gentile must first become a Jew in order to receive the Holy Spirit. They're thinking this household needs to go the final step and be circumcised and become Jewish before they could receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the way the Jews did at Pentecost. They're still thinking that thought. It's still in there somewhere. Now, maybe Peter wasn't as astonished as the Jews who came with him because they hadn't seen the vision that Peter had seen. Commentary says, and as for Peter, it may almost be said, this is from Chrysostom, 4th century, it may almost be said that he is present only to be taught with them the lesson that they must take the Gentiles in hand and that they themselves are the persons by whom this must be done. So this whole scene, in one regard, is as much to instruct Peter and the other Jews as it is to bless the Gentiles who are being saved. Now, this is a great controversy in today's world. Um, And we have to speak about it with love and with, with, with care. But I do want us to note God's mode of baptism. God pours out His Spirit upon those He saves. God's mode of Spirit baptism is pouring from above. About this, Pastor Kaiser says, the second thing that we see is that this baptism is monergistic. So the Holy Spirit baptism is what's in view here. That's a $10 word that's made up of two words, mono, or one, and the Greek word ergos, or working. So monergistic means one working. It means that man is passive, and God alone is active. God does not baptize by immersion, where the spirit is passive, and the man is active in going down into the spirit, and coming back up out of the spirit. No, the activity is all with the Holy Spirit. Consistently in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Spirit was by pouring. In verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those. Fell is the key. God's the one who takes the initiative. The movement is with the Holy Spirit, not with these men, women, and children. In verse 45, it says that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. So this baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism by God, was monergistic. It is God's action, not ours. And so our theology of sovereign grace is demonstrated in the mode of God outpouring His Spirit. That It is typified there. It is given in pictorial form for us. It's really what happens. And it's described to us this way so we experientially see it happening. And that's why We consider this in considering the mode of water baptism. If our goal is for water baptism to best exemplify God's spirit baptism, if our sacraments are meant to exemplify God's work and to demonstrate the sovereign grace that is ours, then our baptism will be a pouring of water. Our visible baptism that we carry out will be a pouring of water or a sprinkling. We look in the Old Testament in every situation where water or blood 
are being used, it is an example of pouring or sprinkling. Pastor Kaiser says, our water baptism should symbolize God's spirit baptism, shouldn't it? John the Baptist said that this water baptism symbolized the coming spirit baptism. If God baptizes by pouring, then so should we. Now, I was immersed. This is Pastor Kaiser talking about himself. I was immersed, and we accept immersion, and so do we here at our church. But we believe that both the Old and the New Testaments consistently called for baptism by pouring or by sprinkling. In fact, every Old Testament prophecy of Pentecost calls the coming of the Holy Spirit either a pouring out or a sprinkling upon the people. God starts the ball of spiritual life rolling by giving us the spirit baptism without asking our permission. And instantaneously, there is an empowering for service that happens. Spirit baptism starts the empowering for kingdom living. Filling continues that empowering. So what was the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they saw? And this is a meaningful question because this is something you can ask yourself. What, what evidence do you have in your life that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and brought to faith in Christ? What evidence is there in your life of the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit in your life? So what are these two simple things that are pointed to? Speaking in tongues and magnifying God, and they go together. They're not separate. Now, we've already studied this extensively in conjunction with the speaking in tongues mentioned in Acts chapter 2, so I'm not going to go through all of those arguments again. These Gentiles are given the immediate, miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language or in multiple foreign languages that they did not previously know. And the purpose of miraculous new linguistic ability given by God in this setting by His Spirit, is always for the glory of God and His purposes in His kingdom. The speaking in tongues is always for the glory of God, the building up of His people, the advancement of His kingdom. Matthew Henry says, They spoke with tongues which they never learned, perhaps the Hebrew, the holy tongue, as the preachers were enabled to speak the vulgar tongues, that they might communicate the doctrine of Christ to the hearers. So probably the hearers were immediately taught the sacred tongue that they might examine the proofs with the, which the preachers produced out of the Old Testament in the original. Or their being enabled to speak with tongues intimated that they were all designed for ministers and by this first descent of the Spirit upon them were qualified to preach the gospel to others, which they did but now receive themselves. But observe, when they spoke with tongues... They magnified God. So, granted, to what end they spoke in tongues in this particular setting is not stated. It's mysterious. But we see in Acts 2 that the purpose was for the acceleration of evangelism, the acceleration of the kingdom of God. And Matthew Henry argues here, in this setting it could be for the acceleration of their learning by them coming to understand the Hebrew tongue. We don't know. But we do know that this miraculous gift of tongues is the ability to speak in previously unknown languages for the purpose of communicating the magnification of God. So what does this word magnify mean? It means to make great, to make conspicuous. Do you make God, the Most High God, conspicuous by your living? 
to declare great, to esteem highly, to extol, to laud, to celebrate. So these new believers are speaking aloud to the Jews and to one another of God's greatness and salvation. They're magnifying him for what he has done for them in Christ. In their great joy as poor sinners, as God's enemies, those under his judgment, rejoicing as, as washed clean by Christ's blood, experiencing this mercy of God all because of his grace, not because of anything they had done, all of these truths coming to bear in their mind in this moment of salvation, undeserving, enemies of God, and now they're his friends, beloved in him. All they can do is declare his greatness aloud to one another and to him with one another. Their joy in God's love, mercy, and grace overflows unto much, much praise of God. Does this define your life? What are the things that we spend our time magnifying in today's world? Think about this. Think about the great energy and money and time that's spent on so many things in our world. These people were magnifying God. Let us be like them in our joy and in our salvation. Commentary says they spoke of Christ and the benefits of redemption which Peter had been preaching to the glory of God. Thus did they on whom the Holy Ghost first descended. So if this happens at the beginning and we continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then we're going to do more magnifying God, not less. It seems to me that sometimes new Christians, this happens to them and they magnify God so much that old crusty Christians no longer filled with the God regularly convince them to shut up. Well, you know, you can overdo it. Really? Can you really overdo magnifying God? Can you speak too much of Him? Can you speak too often of the glory of Christ on the cross? Can you speak too much of the glory of God in saving wicked sinners who deserve nothing but His wrath? Can you speak too much of this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His great glory in the saving of hell-deserving sinners? We can't speak too much of His glory and of his greatness. So it would make sense, wouldn't it, that if we're being filled with the Spirit more and more, we're going to continue to magnify him more and more. Acts 2.11, the same thing happened back the first time this occurred with the Jews. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. What are they speaking? The wonderful works of God. See, that's what we've been called forth to declare the praises of him who has saved us. And to use every gift that he gives us to extol him and to magnify his name. Until he takes us off this earth, frees us from our sin and the attacks of the enemies. So that we can go on forever in unbroken magnification of him forever and ever. Alright. So because these Gentiles spoke in these new languages miraculously... And because the words they spoke were magnifying and praising God, both things, just like Peter had experienced himself, Peter and the other Jews present had undeniable evidence that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles just like God had done upon the Jews at Pentecost. And the Jews needed this kind of evidence to be freed 
from their thinking. They didn't yet understand that the old covenant dispensation was going to come to a permanent end. They didn't get that yet. So this astonished Peter and the other Jews there because it had yet to really sink in that Judaism as the way to be restored to God's favor was no longer necessary. You did not have to go to the synagogue. You did not have to go and trust in sacrifices. You did not have to become a Jew to be made right with God. And and it, it completely broke apart their way of understanding reality. Now to us today, this is old news. But what's not old news in our world? In what ways are we separated from others the same way? This is the question for us. Where do we treat people the way that Peter and the Jews thought of Cornelius and his household? Matthew Henry says it surprised them exceedingly and perhaps gave them some uneasiness because upon the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, which they thought had been appropriated to their own nation. Had they understood the scriptures of the Old Testament which pointed at this, it would not have been such an astonishment to them. But by our mistaken notions of things, we create difficulties to ourselves in the methods of divine providence and grace. And we have to think the Lord Jesus Christ instructed them in these things. They just hadn't arrived at the moment to see it happen yet and to be struck with the reality of the old covenant dispensation coming to a close and the new covenant of grace coming fully into the world. So what does Peter do? He calls for water baptism. Okay? Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So because the Gentiles had received Holy Spirit baptism poured out upon them, just like the Jews, Peter argues there's no reason to forbid immediately baptizing these Gentiles with water baptism. So Peter gets it. He now understands that the Jewish rite of bloody household circumcision has been replaced by bloodless household water baptism. Converts into the new covenant in Christ have no need of old covenant signs. Commentary says, Baptism is available also for Gentiles who've received forgiveness of their sins through Christ and who are ready to commit themselves to the name of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, in public. God is no longer partial to Jews since the purity laws related to food no longer separated Jews and Gentiles. Peter's instant willingness to baptize Cornelius and his household is impressive given his earlier insistence that he does not cross the boundary between clean and impure things. Peter has repented. Peter has been brought to a new understanding of things. Peter has continued to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to come to more, to wiser understanding of the world in which he lived at that time. Also, note that Peter calls for baptism in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> now, there are some who really want to go off the deep end about this, especially those who are heretics and not Trinitarians, and who want to say that there's uh, not three persons and one God. Uh, modalism is the word you'll hear it called, and oneness, oneness Pentecostalism is a, a, an often way that this is uh, demonstrated. Um, Unitarianism 
is the, the general concept, and, and it's heresy. And they'll, they'll refer to scriptures like this to make their point. So how does this square with what we read in Matthew 28, 19, where we're told to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I think it's a helpful word here from the commentary. In the name of the Lord, that is, in the name of our Savior. But this does not imply that they were not baptized according to our Savior's prescription in Matthew 28, 19. But the Jews, by their baptism, were become the Lord's and had given up their names to Jesus Christ, under which title the Lord, not only our Savior, but the Father who anointed him and the Spirit by whom he was anointed is to be understood. So the Jews could provide this kind of baptism well within a Trinitarian framework. Okay? So what happens next? They ask Peter to stay a few days. This is beautiful. It's simple, but it's very beautiful. They ask him to stay. You really come to understand what people believe by the way they behave. You really come to understand what people think of one another by whether they spend time together. We really come to understand whether we have seen one another as fellow siblings in God's family. We're family. We understand that by how we treat one another. If we really believe that, there'll be an appearance of that in our community. Our local assembly will have more of the flavor of family than the flavor of independent households that bounce off of one another like billiards balls. We will be family to one another. The unity and the communion of believers in Jesus Christ is displayed immediately. It's not just a doctrinal thing. These folks are now in the same eternal family. And they understand this. The breaking down of the middle wall of separation has this immediate joyful set of consequences. Not just individually, but in their fellowship with one another. They will know you are my disciples by your good doctrine, by your love for one another, by your love for one another. A new era has become, has, has begun. A new era has come into existence where everything that divided one human being from another has been destroyed. And the devil's work and the work of our flesh before and since then has been to divide human beings from one another. It's, it's so prevalent in our world today, brothers and sisters. We are pickled in this polarizing way of thinking. You're not normal if you don't have a set of humans that you hate. Today's world. That's not how we think as Christians. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians throughout the world, and those outside Christ, we are to see with compassion and a longing for them to come to know Christ. The only division, the only polarization that matters is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. And our longing and our desire is to see our fellow human beings brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We save our passionate hatred for the devil and his minions, and we express this in our prayers against them. 
We express our hatred towards the lies and the murder and the adultery and the idolatrous behaviors and we call them out for the filth and we expose them like we're called to do but with hearts of compassion towards our fellow human beings with every word. Like the judge says in Christian nations of bygone times to the murderer convicted to be hung with all sincerity God have mercy on your soul. It is our longing that those of the whole world, human beings, would be saved. A new era has begun, and it has immediate, familial, social, political, international consequences. Oh, may God free us from the foolishness of this giving into this polarization in the world in which we live. It ends up with endless wars, young men being sent off to die for no good reason, all the while convinced that they're definitely fighting in a war of good versus evil. Well, sometimes there are such wars, but there hasn't been one in a long time. May God have mercy on us, brothers and sisters, to be those who express the gospel in our lives in such a way that this overwhelming flood of love and unity breaks down the barriers. Don't be baited into political conversations and be the conservative or the liberal or whatever you want to be. Don't, don't do that. It's about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. That is where we, that is where we agree to polarization is in that conversation. Okay. Back to my notes. It's, it's just so terrible what's happening in today's world. Everything is about polarization. Everything is about getting us to hate one another and to be afraid. Commentary says, in sum, God directs an epoch-making event in which Gentiles are accepted in fellowship and receive the gospel. Their faith leads to the gift of the Spirit, the sign that the new era has arrived, in addition, they are not circumcised, and yet table fellowship and full hospitality between Jews and Gentiles ensues. <clears throat> so some questions to know and to love and to obey God. Do you see how God in this text today connects His Holy Spirit outpouring with the preaching of His Word do you see the connection? Do you desire to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit to experience this ongoing work of God in your life? More and more gifts, the strengthening of your gifts, the strengthening of your faith, the increase of your peace and your magnification of God in your life, the experience of wisdom, and knowing when and where to apply your gifts for the glory of God. <clears throat> Please say yes, somebody. Yes, okay, very good. All right. I mean, most of these questions, as you know, are rhetorical, but that one was not, okay? All right, well, here's the question. Where do you wait for him? Now, I have some people say, well, 
I, you know, I go out under the stars. You know, the trees and the stars, that, that's, that's how I hear God's word. Nope. You wait for the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit in the simplest of ways as you read and meditate and ponder and study His holy word with the faith to know that He will pour out His Spirit upon you, filling you more and more as you do so. You want revival? That's what it's about. All right, next. Do you somehow expect to be more and more filled with God's Spirit apart, apart from earnest attention to God's Word? <clears throat> Do you think it's an emotional thing where you just have to really pray, just really pray, just really super, super pray, really, really hard for God to pour out His Spirit upon you? Like achieve some sort of emotional threshold breakthrough or, or, or something else? That's, that's humanistic. God is not a genie in a bottle. If we want to be more filled with God's Spirit, then we want to give our attention to God's Word. Okay? Now this is a step into a new conversation. Our salvation, if you will, our justification the cleansing of sins, the remission of sins, the being brought into the kingdom is a monergistic work of God. The ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit, our sanctification, is a synergistic work. Now, we'll all look back and see that every time we went to read God's word, it was because the Spirit prompted us, and we'll see it's all of Him. And yet, we are told that to be sanctified, we have duties we are to perform. You will not be sanctified apart from God's word. You will not. You will not be sanctified apart from the means of grace that God has given you. Okay, does that make sense? So real revival, how, what does it look like? It looks like the people of God with hunger and earnestness daily pursuing the means of grace with faith and gratitude that God will be continually pouring out His Spirit in them. And they will be more and more like Christ each day. And families, and churches, and cultures built on people like that. That is revival. And it can happen at a very rapid pace. Or it can happen at a slower pace. It's all according to God's plan. Okay. Do you see how faith in Christ, faith in Christ is to, delivered to us by God's Holy Spirit, granting us this more and more, granting us this more and more, saving faith, that's what he's granting to us, more and more faith, as we hear and meditate upon the gospel. It's, it's saying the same thing, but in a different order. Please, foot-stomping moment, do you connect growth in faith with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the application of your attention to God's Word. Is that how you approach sanctification? And Because, you know, you can go too far in either direction, right? You can say, oh, it's all just about 
the Holy Spirit and you're out in the woods looking at the stars and you're ignoring God's word. Now, does God bless us by his spirit when we contemplate his works in creation? Of course, right? But we can also just be over here in the word treating it as purely an academic exercise of knowledge and not knowing that our sanctification relies upon God pouring his spirit out upon us as we're in his word and that it's a personal thing. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a set of ideas, not a, not a philosophical system, a person. More and more of God dwelling in you defines sanctification in you and through you. Next. Do you give God all the credit and glory for your salvation? Using all of the spirit-wrought gifts that he gives to you to magnify him, extol him, and to praise him. <clears throat> Next. Do you see the monergistic work of God's Holy Spirit baptism? Have you considered that before? That it is God pouring out his spirit upon us. That's the phrase that's used. It's all of God. And what does that make us? That makes us grateful, helpless recipients. In fact, so helpless at the beginning that we're called dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we used to live. So baptism, water baptism poured out on someone is giving us a picture of someone who's dead, who's raised to life by the work of God from above and not by anything inside themselves. And this is reflected in the mode of baptism that we see in the majority of the Reformed creeds and confessions and throughout the history of the church. And that's why we teach pouring and sprinkling, but we understand that the immersion is held, and for good reasons, by many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we will do immersion baptisms, right, for the sake of the unity of God's church. Those who hold to, by the way, immersion baptism, see it as symbolizing our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. So they'll point to Romans 6 as the justification for immersion baptism. And that's very reasonable. But our, our position is that water baptism is typifying the outpouring of the Spirit. Typifying, showing forth the outpouring of the Spirit. That's what it's meant to represent. Next. Do you see that when we are united by faith with Jesus Christ, forgiven of our sins, that we're also made those who've received all the benefits that are ours in Christ? The gifts of the Spirit are given to you by the working of the Holy Spirit. And in this, He blesses you at, at your salvation with everything necessary to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him. And to follow him. Do you consider. The greatness of God. In salvation. And overflow. With magnifying him. With your words. With your life. That's what we want to be. And that's, that's revival. When that happens. I hope that each one of you. Um, either today or very shortly. In the, in the near future will be able to think of a time 
when you saw the work of the Spirit in your life like this, and you could see the evidence of God's Spirit in your life like this, causing you to rejoice and magnify Him and to see a, a new way of thinking and a new way of living growing in you more and more. The regular work of the Spirit in your life for His glory. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, bless us, we pray, to hear and to believe Your Word. And we do desire, Lord, that it would not just be us hearing Your Word, but that it would be You, O God, in gracious kindness, pouring out Your Spirit upon us, filling us more and more unto lives of fruitful service to You, unto uh, more and more communion of the saints, greater unity with You and with one another, O God, greater experience of our unity. Bless us, we pray, Lord, to be filled with Your Spirit more and more each day as we give attention to Your Word as our faith in Christ increases. All for Your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name.